0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to Platform Enterprise, the podcast for people who are pissed off with capitalism. I'm your host, Rachel Donald, and I'm a journalist working at the intersection of media and activism. You can find my most recent work over at platformenterprise.com, where you can also subscribe to get my newsletter and this podcast delivered to your inbox every week. On today's episode is Gordon Maloney, one of the founding members of Living Rent, a Scottish organisation that organises to help people who are in sort of dire straits with their housing, and that also campaigns for a fair housing system in the United Kingdom. Gordon is a key member of the Scottish (laughs) left, I was going to say the young Scottish left, but I don't know if we count as youthful anymore. Uh, He was certainly very involved in university politics, uh, the National Union of Students, and has since kind of gone on to get more involved in like the grassroots level um, of community. Uh, So he's an expert in all things housing. He is very well versed on kind of the left's culture. And it was a really, really fascinating conversation with somebody deeply embedded in community organization to discuss what's wrong with the left. What do we need to do? What is wrong with British politics? How did we end up here? These are some of the questions that we attempt to answer and what I particularly love about speaking with Gordon is that he doesn't just try to answer what you know where the problem comes from but addresses what's the solution, where do we need to go, what does Britain need to look like or what does politics need to look like in order to achieve an equitable future. So I know you're really going to enjoy this because I really enjoyed it. Uh, It was great to have him on the show. Make sure to check out Living Rent at livingrent.org. They are an organization that has grown from, you know, a couple of friends sort of getting together to fight um, an amendment to an organization with thousands of members. So make sure to check them out. And if you're ever in need, be sure to contact them. If you enjoy the show, please do leave us a five star rating and a comment on whatever, you know, listening app you're listening on subscribe to platform um and also over at platformenterprise.com you can find the link to go and watch this episode over on satellite. All right, that's enough of an intro. Here's Gordon everyone. Enjoy. Gordon, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Before we hit record we started to get into all of the problems with the left. Uh, yeah, and I'd no, love to <laughs> just one or two. <laughs> I'd love for you to um, actually get into it again, what you were saying about um, your Greek friend or the the activist yeah. that you met a couple of years ago.
1: Sure, yeah. So um, when, in 2015, um, it was just after the Scottish independence referendum. I think a lot of people uh, here had been like really enthused by that. Um, and then obviously that was a no. Um, and then in January, uh, January 2015, there was an election in Greece. And at this point it was clear that Syriza, so this like, Coalition of of various far left parties. It was clear that they were going to win the election, and a group of us, a big group of us, went over to Greece. Partly to enjoy enjoy Greece, um, but partly to like see that and and, and and like be there for that and see what happens. And I remember, for example, we we'd arranged, and um, the Syriza youth wing um had arranged to meet us, and they said they were going to go canvassing. And they arranged to meet you know, canvassing. In, in Britain is this really, like, genteel meet at, like, 10 a.m. on a Saturday and you go around doors. And they arranged to meet at 10 o'clock at night in this, like, town square. Um, and we got there and none of them were there. And then they, like, slowly started arriving and they were all drinking and, and stuff. And it wasn't until about half 11 that they actually went canvassing. And what canvassing for them was, just like, going into nightclubs and, like, chatting to people there. And I was like, this is amazing. This is a totally different world. But one of the things that someone said to us was um, we were talking about there were people from all over Europe that had come and, and and they one of the Greek people said that they they had the impression that the British left was afraid of power uh, and as I was saying that that phrase has really stuck with me and I, I really I see it all the time I think there was this brief anomaly with Corbynism where there was a, a genuine attempt to, to like take over the state but, but even then that was almost accidental. like. He didn't didn't intend to win the leadership election, and I really think that was an anomaly. And I think you see it in the way uh, trade unions behave. Very often, you certainly see it in the way like lots of activist groups behave. That they really, and 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 and, and more so with kind of individuals. That I think a lot of people really content themselves with being correct rather than being influential, and and so they'd they'd rather have the right position in in, in like. In, in this kind of abstract pure sense rather than like achieve anything mm. I, and to me that's just a nonsense I just think it's ridiculous I, I want to I want to like I believe these things because you know I'm a socialist because the world is terrible mm. and, and I want to change it uh, and I, I don't want to just think well everything's getting continuing to get worse but I've got the perfect position on this mm. issue um, and and you know, th- things in the end didn't go well in Greece uh, for for Syriza, but they they did win. They did take over the state, uh, and that really reshaped my ambitions in 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 terms of like politics and and like social change generally. That I, I don't want to just win some tiny little tweak here or there, or or you know, have an activist group that's perfect. Um, I want to I want to change the world.
0: Mm. Like Podemos, I remember when Podemos yeah. won, and you and I were like messaging each other, like, "Oh my god, are you seeing yeah. this shit happen?"
1: Well, <laughs> so this there was this like um, uh, that that was the chant they had um, in 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 Greece when when Syriza won at the victory rally. They were chanting Syriza Podemos Vem Podemos, like Syriza Podemos, we will win. Uh, and they it was fascinating to me because they spoke of this like wave of left wing parties taking over Europe. Um, and at the time, it looked like a, you know, series were, they, they won, they, and, and they were going to win. At the time, briefly, Podemos were um, ahead in the polls in, in Spain. It looked like they could win. Uh, Sinn Féin were ahead in Ireland, mm. um, and they talked and they talked about Syriza, Podemos, Sinn Féin, and the SNP in Scotland, which was oh. blew my mind. And, and all the people from Scotland were like, "Ah, oh, not, sure, not sure it's quite the same same sort of party." Mm. Um, but they really had this idea of this, like, insurgent thing. And it was interesting because they, part of their analysis of what needed to happen to save Greece was that Europe needed to yeah. change. Um, and so, you know, Syriza gets a lot of stick for how, how badly things went. But people were saying to us then at the election, they were like, if if Podemos don't win and if other European countries don't don't change, we won't have a chance. Um, so I've got a bit of sympathy for that one. Like maybe they, they were just on their definitely. own
0: definitely and i think the sort of um horrible thing about being a left-wing party in a sea of like centrists and right-wing party is that mm-hmm. you then have to have that ideological purity that bars you from achieving anything otherwise you're just an open target a very very easy target for the right wing and for the centrist to, to to get you essentially and to undermine anything that you're doing and i think that this is like um you know, this is off the back of postmodernism and it's like, it's what is collectively or colloquially, sorry, known as um, identity politics. But like, you have to, we have to start prioritizing because the planet is in such um, trouble. But prioritizing means that some things are going to come bottom of the list. And for a left-wing party to kind of prioritize nationally on an international stage that is made up predominantly of people on the other side of the spectrum then it's so it's just an easy diversion and distraction to be like, well, why aren't you doing this though? Why aren't you doing this? Like, isn't this part of what your platform is? Like, why aren't you looking after women or why aren't you looking after immigrants or what, you know, <laughs> and it's like, it's yeah. impossible.
1: Yeah. And I, well, I think there's a way of those things being like counterposed to each other. Um, and they like, they, they conflict, but I think there's ways of combining them that like, that, that managed to like synthesize those issues. So so you think um for example in, in, in housing stuff when when we we're doing a lot of this uh, campaigning around high rents, that's 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 bad for everyone. It's like a a position, like a situation that, that is bad for all tenants. But it's particularly bad, for example, for women, because the pay gap means women earn less and so high rents are particularly mm-hmm. bad for women. It's particularly bad for Migrants who, um, you know, if you've only just moved here, you've got very little hope of getting into social housing, and and so you're much more likely to be in the in the private rented sector. And one of the things that we've always tried to do is rather than seeing racism or sexism or whatever as this like issue distinct from the thing that we care about, that we have to pick and choose either we campaign on that or we campaign on housing. We like to treat it as really part and parcel of the same mm-hmm. the same issue, uh, and it's. It's interesting because you have those conversations with people on the doorstep. I think housing is one of the areas where you speak to people in deprived communities who have terrible housing situations, and and you occasionally hear people say things like, oh, the problem is all these migrants, all these Polish people come here and they get given lovely council classes. It's obviously Mm. nonsense, but what we find is that actually you you can persuade them that not only is that not true, but that the real people who who um who are are benefiting are are not migrants. They're the landlords who own your house and refuse to make repairs. And I think our approach is always look, there aren't enough socialists out there for, for the change that we need. And, and so we need to be persuading people. Um and and that necessarily means working with people who mm. you disagree with and sometimes who have opinions that you find Really objectionable, or really offensive, or problematic, or whatever. I don't think we can afford to blacklist people because of that. Um, not not least because they're also often like working class people who need to, who need to be a part of like a collective solution to things. But also because you're not actually helping anyone else by doing that. Like if if you you just shut people out, you've got no hope of persuading. Them. And I've lost count of the amount of times people have said something racist to me on the doorstep, knocking doors for, for living rent, and I've been able to persuade them. I remember there was one conversation where the guy started saying, oh, it's, it's those fucking immigrants. And we chatted, and after, couple, not, I mean, genuinely like three or four minutes, he said to me, and it's really stayed with me, he said, I'm being daft, aren't I? It's not the immigrants, it's the fucking landlords. And I was like, it's not actually that hard. To persuade people. Um, but if you don't try, you're obviously not going to do it. And the thing is, the right have no qualms about that, right? They have no qualms about trying to persuade people and win the right for their argument. And they're supported in doing that by like this whole infrastructure of hegemony, like the newspapers, the way politicians speak, whatever, um, to, to do that. So they're, they're doing it on favourable terrain anyway, but but they really try and persuade people. And if we don't, then we sacrifice people who are disillusioned in bad material circumstances who should be left wing, right? Who should mm. be like we've got the narrative of the story to sell them. Um, but they're not just gonna decide it on their own.
0: Yeah. But it's that it's that old adage, um while the while the left is looking for traitors, the right is looking for recruits.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah so yes, I hadn't heard that before, but that's, that's spot it, on.
0: I just and heard I think, it a couple of weeks ago and it has stayed with me like nothing else.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think like, you know, there's something to be said for, you know, activist spaces, left-wing spaces need to be safe and whatever. And What I'm not saying is like, we should welcome with open arms, like people who are like unrepentant Nazis, obviously not. <laughs> um, but I think sometimes we accuse people of being unrepentant Nazis because they you know they've regurgitated something they've heard or they've you know, they've picked up a phrase or, you know, they've said something or, you know, they've read something in a newspaper they've maybe not interrogated and they they believed it. Um, And um, I think, you know, we we live in a society that is racist and sexist and whatever. And so everyone picks some of that up. If you're only looking for people who are totally pure, totally insulated from all of that, you're limiting yourself to being able to organize with, I mean, basically no one, but even if you reduce your standards a little bit, you're still talking a tiny, tiny number of people. You just have no hope of making any change like that. I I don't think.
0: Absolutely, I agree. You know, ContraPoints um, was tweeting something Mm -hmm. a couple of months ago and it applied to the LGBT community, but I think we can apply it to the left as well. And it was something about like, you know, if a community is so disempowered and has so little actions to take, then sort of like picking out the low-hanging fruit of like cancel culture and attacking within their own ranks and like doing anything to just regain some sense of autonomy and some sense of choice. Like that's what they will flock to do. Because she's been cancelled by her own community a couple of times. Um, And I think that really, really applies to the left. It's something that I felt quite sorry for, for like a lot of leftists that there is very little wiggle room, you know, to achieve... A lot of what needs to be done it's going to involve undoing centuries worth of institutionalized racism and sexism and colonialism yeah, and imperialism yeah. et etc etc um however that said it is interesting that there does seem to be like this um this safety of ideological purity on the british left that means that they won't ever have to get to power they won't ever have to take responsibility yeah. for their vision because it's impossible to be ideologically pure. If you're ideologically pure, you're going to be sending people to concentration camps. That's the last time that somebody oh, that ideologically it, pure was in it, power. It,
1: I mean, it's also like look like at in housing stuff. You know, there's lots of like academics who are really smart, really know their stuff, really really know housing better than anyone in living rent does. Um and I'm sometimes a little bit frustrated that like what's the point in knowing all that? What's the point in in knowing the, like the inside and out of like British housing policy over the last hundred years mm. if all you're going to do is write academic papers about it? Yeah. Like for me, the point is to change things, and um I, yeah, and, and so you, you, you talked about low hanging fruit. I think I think it's partly low hanging fruit. I think it's partly impatience. Mm-hmm. So Jane McAlevey is a, like a union organizer in the states. Talks about. It's got a book called No Shortcuts and, uh, and talks about how, you know, sometimes people, you just want to get something achieved really quickly. Um, and if you if you really, if you want to like get lots of people to a demonstration, it's way easier to get the people who already agree with that cause to come to the demonstration. And you might then mobilize a lot of people. That might be effective. You, you might be able to achieve some things um, with that demonstration. But if you want to change the world, you need to think how you get people who don't already agree with that to come to it. And, and so I think like, how do you persuade people? How do you win people around? And I think that stuff necessarily is, is less sexy and it's less exciting because it's not big protests with flares and strikes and things like that. It's, it's quiet conversations. It's, it's, it's like persistence. It, it's, it's like a real slog. Um, and it also, I you know, I, I can understand that people feel desperate like things suck there are things there are really bad things happening that we need to change urgently and um, but i think we need to build into the way we do that like uh my approach is the organization always has to be stronger bigger more more confident more self-sufficient after any specific issue any specific campaign than it was when it started it was getting new members recruiting new people who hadn't been involved in politics before but you know, start to persuade them Um, and again that necessarily means speaking to people who like not only might they have like objectionable views but they might just like not be left-wing you know and we speak to speak to tenants who um are maybe like maybe voted Tory maybe voted Lib Dem or whatever but but there's this issue that they really care about and I some people are a little bit squeamish about that I really I love it I really relish that because it's that so, to me it's such an exciting opportunity to be like you know have a second chance and and and, and change your mind and there was this woman on Question Time I remember this um, a couple of years ago it was like after the tax credit stuff I can't remember the exact thing she said she you know she voted Tory and and now she was really suffering because of something they were doing she was in tears and a lot of people a lot of people you know, welcomed that but a lot of people were really like well oh, you get what you vote for it's your fault you should have voted Tory I was like ridiculous like if people don't have space to change their mind we're there's no hope not
0: democracy anymore if people don't have space to change their well mind. we're
1: not a democracy but also like if if everyone can only vote the way they, la- they voted last time they're gonna keep voting Tory and unless that's what you want then
0: <laughs> which is like the ultimate yeah, tenet we're... of cancel culture isn't it that like you know once you say or do yeah. one thing then that's you defined forever
1: yeah.
0: mm.
2: Yeah, totally,
0: yeah. So, so what have you found is, like, the most useful way of, I don't want to say converting people, but, like, empowering people
1: mm-hmm.
0: to, to think about yeah. their options or, or you know, to, to try something else?
1: It's a good question. Um, I'm not sure there is, like, one... I'm not sure there's, like, a, a silver bullet or, like, a, a, one specific thing. Um, in housing stuff, my experience has been uh, – housing's maybe cheating a little bit um, because I think most people basically already agree. Most people already think, like, their rent's too high, their landlord's a dickhead, that the housing system's broken. You know, most people are basically already there. And, and you see that. We, you know, we've done – both when you speak to people um, uh, and also when you do polling and, and – and, the majority of people support rent controls, things like that, um, and that's maybe not the case with some other issues where 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 you really need to do that. But but I think what is the same is although people already think that, what can be really difficult is persuading them that they can do something about it. Um, so I, I remember we had a case uh, a couple of years ago: a woman, a young couple were in a flat, and it was. I mean, I'd hardly ever seen a worse flat. The mould was absolutely disgusting, and, and, and they, they, they sent us these pictures, and we met with them to talk about it. And she kept saying this thing that really like upset me, where she was like, "Am I just am I just causing a fuss? Like am I just am I just overreacting?" And and so much of what we had to do, you know, we didn't need to persuade her that our, that it was shit. We had to persuade her that she deserved something better, that she deserved dignity, um, and. I think a big part of that is a legacy of defeat that most people don't like articulate that way, but like people haven't seen, she hadn't seen big social struggles succeed and seen, you know, whereas, you know, in the, the, maybe in the, in the 50s and 60s, that was was less the case. People had, people had seen trade unions win big disputes. They'd seen left wing parties take over. They'd seen national liberation. Struggles in in, in, in in other countries win and, and like mm. overthrow mm. governments and stuff. Um, and I think we've got a generation of people who, their whole adult lives have been defined by if it wasn't the Iraq war, it was the climate crisis or the, the financial crash or the climate crisis or now Corona or whatever. Like it's just been defeat after defeat after defeat. And so for me, one of the biggest things you need to persuade people of is that. Removed from whatever the specific issue is, that they have a right to demand better and that we can win when we organize for it. Um, and you, know, you do that by showing them and that, showing them where these victories have happened. So we have like cases with living rent, being able to point to something similar that we won previously with someone else is able to do that. And I think there's also something to be said for things are getting so bad now that people are being forced into action whether they like it or not so even pre-pandemic something like 10% of people in Scotland at any one time were in rent arrears. right huge numbers of people weren't paying their rent but that wasn't a, anything deliberate or coordinated or political it was just they, didn't, they just didn't have the money and, and and they weren't paying it and what we were trying to say is imagine if you know if we called a rent strike 10% of people took part in it. That would be mm. unprecedented. Nothing like that would have happened for a hundred years in Scotland. Um, and so I think there's something to be said that people are being forced into desperation anyway, giving them the confidence and the infrastructure to turn that desperation into something productive rather than just like a last resort. To me, it feels optimistic.
0: I think we should then give some background actually about Living Rent and how it started and all that. And then I want to sure. go into um, why you think activist spaces are seeing, not all of them, but some of them are seeing these sort of incredible wins mm. while politics stagnates increasingly and collapses in on itself. Yeah. So, but yeah, you were one of the founding members of Living Rent, right?
1: Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't like to...
2: We yeah, try yeah, to not yeah. be like super like to hierarchical, so, them, so right? I do yeah, like yeah, yeah, okay.
1: You know who it is, but yeah, I was, I was, I was there. I was there from the start. <laughs> um, is how I put it. Um, and so it started in twenty fourteen, actually, just weeks before we went to Greece. Um, and it started because I mean, partly the, the independence referendum had just happened, and a lot of people have like really enjoyed going out and talking about how the world could be a better place. And then some of them were disappointed, some of them were happy, but like. None of them wanted to stop. Like they, they were, you know, they enjoyed that, and and so it was just then weeks after the referendum, the Scottish government announced they were doing a new housing bill, and it on the surface sounded like it was going to go quite far. It was going to be really, really, really good. In some ways, it lived up to that. In lots of other ways, it didn't. And um, but a group of us realized we had a conversation. We realized with landlords, letting agents, developers, whoever else, they, they are going to go all guns blazing to make sure that this doesn't touch them and, and we were like tenants need an organization that can do that for them as well so what started as a campaign on a specific piece of legislation very quickly we were like well there's going to be more legislation there's going to be more issues so we need to can't just be a campaigning organization that campaigns on this one specific thing but that the organization needs to need a union and it needs to be something more permanent and much better infrastructure and so you know, we won big things in, in that piece of legislation. There's, there's more, more to win. Um, and we've won lots of other campaigns. But the, the thing that to me is really exciting about Living Right is we went from, in the space of just, what, five years, an organisation that began with, it was like four of us in in this like breakout group discussing the, this piece of legislation, to now where we've got thousands of members, we've got 15, 16 branches across Scotland, and we've got a um... paid staff team of... I think eleven now, uh, and I think that's one of the one of the few like parts of the left that's really growing in that way. You know, the the, the general story of of activist groups is they 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 burn bright for a bit and then they, they kind of die down in periods of low struggle. And um, see that with XR a little bit. It's like big like, flash in the pan, and, and a lot of those groups have kind of dissolved a little bit. Um, or the more established groups like trade unions and things that really are, whether or not it's decline, it's certainly stagnation. And, and that's not universally true. There are, there are pockets of, of great things happening. Um, but yeah, and, and so living around those kind of two aspects. We, we do campaign. Um, so we're campaigning for um better, better rights and legislation, things like that, and especially in the context of the election that we just had in Scotland, um, where we had a, a tenant's manifesto. But the bread and butter of what we do is, is what we call community organizing. So really, like I mentioned those branches, lots of them are really small, not in, not in scope, but in, in like geography. So they'll cover a, a couple of streets. Um, and we wanted to do that because we wanted to really go deep rather than broad. Um, we want to go broad as well, but we wanted to first go deep. Um, and, and part of that is everything we were just saying about recruiting new people. I sometimes have the impression that activist groups kind of play top trumps with people who are already bought in. You're just like, one week they'll be at this demo, then the next week they'll be at a meeting for this campaign, then they'll be at this trade union. It's the same people. And you, you go to demonstrations and you recognise half the people. Um and we wanted to not do that. We wanted to really go deep and, and, and recruit new people. And I think that's been really successful. Uh, and it's no exaggeration to say that we, I mean, literally week in, week out, are saving, or winning um, big campaigns for individual members. So uh, we stopped an eviction just yesterday, yesterday morning, one of our members, their oh,
0: wow. uh, young you, stable
1: kid. Yeah. Can you talk
0: uh, about that
1: a little bit? Um, yeah, well, so the, there was a, the government banned evictions during lockdown, um, and that ban is coming to an end. Um and this woman, Lores, was was due to be evicted with her with her kid. Um and the campaign around it kind of had two aspects. There was partly asking the government to do more and and ban evictions properly and, and not allow this to go ahead, but partly building this like community resistance and, and we've been drawing on this for specifically from Kenner Street, where uh, police tried to deport two people from Glasgow and in the time it took them to get into the building and get the guy from his flat and get him into the van, enough people had gathered around the van to stop them leaving and then by the time the police got there, there were thousands of people and they just couldn't it and they forced these so people to get deported in the end. And we really drew on that, like, that is the spirit we need to bring. And so yesterday morning when the eviction was due to take place, there was 30, 40 living rent members outside the flat and outside the home and ready to physically stop any eviction, including an M- MP who'd come down. Oh, wow. Um, and I think that sent a very clear message to the the, the landlords and, and, you know, the tribunal system that, well, actually, you're going to need to find a better way of dealing with this because this eviction can't go ahead.
0: I want to ask about this, right? Mm. Uh, was it was it a private landlord?
1: Yeah.
0: And what was the reason for eviction?
1: i um, 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 I have to admit, I'm not totally across it. Um, okay. I think it was arrears. Um, so, we've okay. had over over lockdown, people you know, people were already struggling to make ends meet beforehand. You know, and 100% of people's wages wasn't enough to pay their rent, and going down to 80% if you were lucky, meant that people have like really fallen into arrears. And, and the Scottish government has given all sorts of support to landlords: uh, grants, no strings attached loans, all sorts of. Um, Kind of political support and they've given tenants no support financially mm. and what that means is although they banned evictions, people have accumulated debts and arrears that they just will never be able to pay back and mm. there's been nothing done to support that uh, and experts, living rent but also shelter and, and other organisations are saying you know, if you just, you don't resolve any of the problems that led to people falling into this debt and you just allow evictions to take place again, what you're going to see is an absolutely unprecedented wave of of addictions and people being made homeless because of because of this debt. So, you know, this specific case, you know, was an important one and um, it was an exciting campaign. But it's just symptomatic of what's to come, uh, and the Scottish government, in my view, just totally failed to to grasp the seriousness of what we're facing or to match that seriousness with the action that that's required.
0: So, happy to get into how the Scottish government has failed. Uh, but just, just on that mm-hmm. case, so... And the same thing with the deportation case, and I remember yeah. watching it and being really, really interested because the thing is, like, how do you stop that from just being like a flash in the pan action? Yeah. I.e., yeah. how do you ensure that they just don't come back tomorrow and do yeah. the same thing? Yeah,
1: totally, totally agree. Um, so, I mean, on the on the deportation on the on the eviction stuff, it's it's a little bit more complicated because they have to give dates and things like that. So, okay, a little bit, little bit more clear cut there. The deportation one, I, I totally agree, and and I, I I watched it and I was like, this is. Amazing, and you know, it's a good indication that so many people are willing to put, you know, risk. It's not really like um risk uh, risk getting arrested or something like that. Was really amazing, but like, yeah, what happens if if the next day the police just turn up in an unmarked van and 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 and, and take yeah. them for deportation? I don't know what the answer to that is. Um, in the short term, but in the kind of medium to long term, I think those sorts of moments are important politically in terms of setting a narrative, right? So the Tories have made like a series of calculations about what the public opinion on on asylum seekers and stuff is, and, and those calculations are reinforced time and time again. All sorts of nonsense. It doesn't bear scrutiny about red wall voters or right wing newspapers doing headlines about it, whatever. And I think seeing thousands of people take to the streets at, with no notice to risk getting arrested to stop two people they didn't know from being deported, I think that burst that bubble a little bit. And, mm. and I think that's partly why the Home Office was so upset. And I think there's a process of like nation-building ongoing in Scotland, where you know, Scotland may well be independent in, in the next two, three, four, five years. And if that's the case, the new Scottish government will have to make some decisions about what Scotland's immigration system looks like. Mm. And so I think there's a danger of seeing things like kemir Street or this deportation, this eviction this in isolation, because you're right, it's, it's possible this person will be deported, although that's not always the case. And, you know, the Stanstead 15, a lot of the people, they stopped being deported, then got granted leave to remain. Um, so, so maybe, hopefully that will happen with these guys. But I think you have to see them, in in my view, you have to see them as part of, of like a storytelling and, and, and like building a narrative about mm. who the public are and what they want and, and, and what politicians think they can get away with. Um, and so even if this eviction does go ahead and, and that deportation does go ahead, I think it's still important that that happens and, and the Kenworth Street was all spontaneous, although not totally spontaneous. You know, there are networks and, and anti-race groups and things that that, that that helps make that happen. But especially the this this eviction, because that was organized by an organization, you know, we're we're able to really deliberately use those moments, those you know, the sexy moments of like stopping bailiffs getting into a into a door um, to build on the the less attractive, less like exciting spending hours going up and down tenement flats, door knocking, chatting to people about problems in their neighborhood. Um, So it was a long-winded response. Maybe maybe they won't win in the short term, um, but I'm really confident they they contribute to winning in the long term.
0: No, I like like your idea that that narrative is important and nation building. Love this term, it's terrifying, but it's also very interesting. And you know, how do you show a government that they are not reflecting the desires of the people? Um, Well, you go out onto the streets. Um, But this other thing that you keep saying of like, you know, certain bits of activism being sexy and not sexy, like it's all Mm -hmm. starting to link up, you know, you need the short term things of of raising awareness, the sexy stuff like protesting and I don't know, chaining yourself to something. and then the long-term stuff of you know trying to have legislation changed. Um...
1: Yeah, I, I see the legislation. Maybe it's the middle term. Okay. Um, I, I think you're right about the short-term stuff. It's the protests. It's the you know, whatever. That I think what people think about when you say activism, it's that stuff. Mm, yeah. I think the long-term stuff is changing. Uh, I always hesitate a little bit to say it because I don't want to sound like wanky and, and like academic, but like raising consciousness. Right. Okay. Um, and I think you know, I talked about lots of people know their life sucks, right? They know their material conditions are terrible and they don't like it. And um, what they don't know and what they don't maybe believe is that they can do anything about it. And I think changing that is both much slower and and and, and, and long term. Than just mobilising the people who already agree with you, hmm. uh, but way more consequential. And if you can do that, then you know, for example, uh, the the people who who need change the most are the ones who are less least likely to vote, for example. Uh, and I'm, I'm you know, in kind of two minds about parliamentary politics, but society like elections in the past would have gone better if. More people have voted, mm-hmm. and, and and the demographics who are, who are least likely to vote, and I think you know that that also has implications for what the legislation is. Politicians base um, their legislative decisions and their agendas and things on the people whose votes they think they need to win, and so if only comfortable white boomers are going to turn out to vote, then they're the interests that politicians are going to represent. And so, for example. Homeowners are way more likely to vote than tenants, which means house prices being high and the housing sector doing well is way more important to politicians than tenants needing house prices to be lower and rents to be affordable. Uh, and that's a really, like, I don't know how that's reconcilable. There's a big challenge there. But at the moment, people don't even have to reconcile it. So we saw one of the very first things the government did in this country about lockdown was... Um, ensure homeowners had mortgage holidays tenants didn't get a holiday okay know?
0: yeah can we talk about that i found this absolutely astonishing
1: Crazy. it gets worse uh, so not only did landlords uh, did um did homeowners get get granted a, a mortgage holiday um and tenants get nothing but landlords also got granted mortgage holidays, and in most cases, they were totally no strings attached. So we know of cases where a landlord got granted a, a mortgage holiday, so they weren't paying their mortgage for, for those three months, but they still made their tenant pay rent. And the Scottish government's response was, well, tenants should go and ask their landlord and, 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 and see if they can negotiate a rent reduction. And in fairness, we, we, we did a lot of work to support tenants getting those rent reductions, and I think. We calculated that you know, we secured about fifty thousand pounds worth of rent reductions, um, but loads of people were saying to us, "I can't quite ask my landlord that." Like, we've got we've got a terrible relationship, and um, and and we know of people who, who did ask and were threatened with eviction. Well, either you pay or you're out. Um, just totally crazy, and, and I think it it really underlines not just you know the balance of power in society and whatever, but I think there are a lot of politicians who are good-minded and and, you know they've got the best intentions in the world but they're just totally deluded about the realities in in this case in in the housing sector but it could be it could be anything else it could be police violence or it could be um in the workplace or or, or but
0: how like because i mean that is uh, back to that example that is such a simple equation hmm grant landlords a mortgage holiday Grant tenants a mortgage like that is one plus one equals two. Yeah. How did they arrive at three? You
1: You'd think so? I mean, part of it is I. I, I remember speaking to a councillor in Edinburgh, um, and we were talking about rent controls. Um, We've been we were doing this. We were going around meeting meeting councillors to talk about talk about. We've been talking about this, and it was like five minutes into the conversation. She's like, "Wait, wait, wait! Don't we have rent controls?" And the reason she thought that was because the last time she yeah. rented. In the seventies, we did have rent controls. And she just, despite being a counsellor, and despite it being forty years and hand clocked, and, and so I, I think part of it is is that you know I think some of these people are just not.
0: We have a political class. Not totally across the Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, but the the other thing, and I think much more consequentially, is organizations like for example in this case the Scottish Association of landlords but every industry has their has their equivalent are on this permanent charm offensive and they've got full-time staff to do this and so they they are speaking to politicians all the time where not only are they, they you know they're crying about how, how terrible things are for landlords and how, how how much pressure they're under but they're also trying to paint a picture of the kinds of things that are going on in the sector So during lockdown, um, they the Scottish Association of landlords were running a campaign to highlight like good landlords who'd given their tenants a rent rebate and the reason they were doing that was not to encourage other members to do that but because it's good yeah. PR it looks yeah. good for them and every example of a good landlord doing something good and of course there are some um, takes pressure off legislative change because they can say look, our members are so reasonable, they're so kind, they're so generous. Look at all these examples. All tenants have to do is ask them. Just whatever you do, don't force us to give rent rebates. Um, and that argument one. And part of that is because, you know, it's a more comfortable narrative for people who don't want to change things fundamentally to hear, because they're the people who already have power. Part of it is because they have the resources to deliver that narrative. You know, landlords and letting agents and stuff can afford PR staff and, and tenants can't and, and I think that's why organizations like Living Rent are so important, because there is a resource question to that power imbalance and we need to start changing that. Um, and yeah, so I mean if you're a politician who I'm being charitable here, and I'm sure you or, or others can can like can interpret a less charitable interpretation. Um, but if you were being charitable, you could say, you know, you're a politician, you're busy, you've got lots of competing briefs, you're not totally, you're not a housing spokesperson, you're not totally across what's happening. And you've got the Scottish Association of Landlords and their friends in shelter and organisations like that telling you how great the sector is, how well it's working, how hard done by landlords are, uh, how, you know, they're barely making ends meet, and um, and then they say, and here's what we think we need to do to make the sector work better for everyone. If you're not totally across it, and you're not being bombarded by the the, the other side of that narrative, it's easier to just go, "All right, cool." Yeah,
0: we'll do and I do understand that. Like, po- politics is a very strange game where we expect people to suddenly overnight yeah. become experts in everything in order to make legislative
1: decisions. Yeah, and yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, on that, there is like we've got a whole generation of people who these like whose politics was shaped by like the thick of it and mm-hmm. the West Wing, and they have this really like warped understanding of like who these people are and how competent and talented they are. And I mean, in my experience, a lot of them are just like just ordinary people, um, and um, and what that means is like politics is not just about this like honest battle of ideas where you can just go like, you, you, you provide them with a nice glossy briefing paper and they'll, they'll do the right thing. There's, there's power and interests and uh, you need to reckon with that as well as having the right ideas.
2: What
0: kind of people do you think are attracted to politics? Because you just said ordinary people. I would like to amend that, but would be like ordinary people Yeah, brains, ordinary people, yeah. But ordinary people?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if they're ordinary people. Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, look, there's a, there's a, a, a yeah, big yeah, variety. Yeah, have um, there's a there's statement. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think, you know, I, I think we've seen over the last couple of years, people like AOC or, um, you know, the, there's, you know, There's a handful of them here as well. People who I think really have gone into politics for the right reasons, because they're organisers, because they want to change their community, because they want to change their country for the better. There definitely are those people. Um, what I think there isn't or hasn't been historically uh, and is starting to change a little bit is like an infrastructure to equip the people who want to go into politics for those reasons with the skills and resources and stuff okay. that they need to do that. Um, and that's important because on the other side there absolutely is that, there's this conveyor belt of you know, the amount of people who go from like l- the legal profession or into politics eaten. and things like that and what that means is the whole yeah, yeah or Eton or Oxbridge or, or like in Scotland what is it like 7% yeah. of people go to private school and, or 3% or something like that and in Parliament it's like 20 or 30% and so I think the same is true of politics, as is about like management levels in workplaces and, and like high-paying jobs and things like that. We just have a culture that values uh, the confidence you get in a private school and how articulate you get from being from a community where your accent sounds like this, and, and this whole range of things that mean that create barriers for people who, if you're like a, a workplace activist your trade union and you like you've got great politics and you want to improve things but you've never you don't know the ins and outs of how your internal party selection process works so you don't know how to pull together a staff team mm. f- to run a campaign or whatever of course that creates loads of barriers and then on the other hand you've got these people who fantasize about politics their whole lives and, and, and they, they do this kind of like fantasy football style you know they, they've mapped out what their office would look like and what jobs what roles they'd have and things like that and ordinary people don't do that that's super weird Um, but it means they're at a big disadvantage when it comes to Mm. it
0: do you think that um, politics would be better if the activists of the world were in office
1: Uh, maybe uh, some of them I think I don't think politics is about individuals Mm. Um, and, and I think like there's certainly politicians, particularly people who've like been around for a long time, who you know, get into politics to like shut their local libraries and close schools mm-hmm. and things like that. You know, there's no way they got into it to do that. You just get warped by this, this culture of um, everything's so important, it's so weighty, and you have to be responsible and do your sure duty and stuff. And I don't think anyone's immune from that. You know, I, I think uh, a lot of people who currently are really good, prominent left-wing activists, would be subject to the same pressures, and, and you see that with lots of politicians, who some of the worst politicians, uh, or, the, or the most like, kind a of right wing, often like in their student days they were like communists yeah. stuff, mm-hmm. uh, and and that's like a well-trodden path. with loads of uh, you know, Labour MPs who strayed very far from where they would have been younger as, as younger people, and I think part of that is that activists. Not activists, but activist spaces and organizations and groups and, and unions and organizations um, don't have effective means of like holding people to account. On the one hand, as the as the stick and like challenging people when they start to stray, but also the carrot. How do you uh how do you offer them support? How do you make sure they've got the the like networks around them and, and things like that? Because I imagine it's tough getting into that, and then suddenly you're being bombarded with people spads and officials and civil servants telling you this is what you need to do, this is how it's done um, It takes an extraordinary amount of like personal resilience to resist that that I just don't in, in the same ways you can't expect everyone to have perfect politics. you can't expect everyone to be able to withstand those sorts of pressures uh, and I think it's on us to create infrastructure that allows people to not have to just have iron will. Uh, in order to get through that and, and, and not become kind of part of the system,
0: there's a there's an interesting and very successful experiment going on at the moment in Rojava, um, mm-hmm. where it's like this this oasis of perfect democracy, um, you know, in the middle of the Middle East, in the middle of all this turmoil. Mm-hmm. um and what they're trialing that they find very successful is for every single mp or like um member of the council or whatever to be coaching yeah. so there always has to be two people per seat and i think man and women i think it's it's split by gender as well yeah. um and they've seen huge success with employing this infrastructure because a it takes the heat off, to, off of somebody; they don't have to be making decisions alone. Yeah. They can talk through with somebody who's given the exact same brief as them, etc. But as somebody who, perhaps, if it is split down by the gender, as I think it is, comes from an inherently, you know, different perspective, um, and it's actually galvanised the the youth to get involved for the first time in in forever, um, and heralded a whole new politics um that works with the dominant religion there the fact that women are also in these positions mm. of power next to the men
1: yeah
0: um so i mean is that like the kind of infrastructure that, that you mean or
1: i think there is a tendency to look mm-hmm. for quick fixes so like what's the one structural thing you can change and everything would be fine and recently you've started to see people in in the kind of british center left thing if we had pr proportional representation, everything would be fine. That the problem is first past the post. Certainly don't like first past the post. I don't think like all our problems boil down to that. Um uh, and and so I'm always always keen to find ways for organizations to do things better. Living around takes a lot of those approaches, you try not to have people doing things on their own, try and have uh, power diffused so you can share and teach and, and learn, things like that. I think all of that stuff's important. I think what I meant by kind of infrastructure is less at that level and more at a kind of grassroots level. So, how do you, uh, for example, how do you hold a shop steward, like a, a workplace rep, to account for the decisions, the things they're doing in their workplace? You can only do that. So, you know, they're, they're going every month to meet with management and talk about things. But... Workers, the other members of the trade union, can only hold that person to account. Firstly, if they know what's going on, so I think you need good accountability processes and good transparency and things like that. They can only do it if they're like engaged in the first place, and so you need to have like a healthy, vibrant culture, like a healthy, vibrant democratic culture internally to to those organisations. And there need to be like processes that you can follow. And I think what happens very often because of this like electoral pressure is you have a campaign group or some kind of organization where someone's often a, a white guy is super charismatic, really, maybe really good looking, really like, you know, they're like, this person could definitely be an MPU or an MSP or whatever. And then what happens is rather than anyone ever like checking that and and, and like taking them down a peg or whatever, they go through this process of being constantly bigged up because you know, you're going into an election or something like that you just need to say that they're amazing all the time. And then they get elected and first of all, that fucks with their ego and and then there's no process where they're like accountable to, to the group that got them elected. And, and so I think organizations like Podemos and uh, a lot of the, the groups in the, in the States are, are trying to work that out. Like how do the people who get Bernie or, or whoever, how do the people who get them elected then continue to, to have a say? And I think the Corbyn project didn't go very far with it, but there was a lot of talk at the time about like democratising the party and, and making it so that it wasn't just the members of parliament that decided how they'd vote on things, but you know the grassroots membership and things like that. I um, don't think they were ultimately very successful, but and basically, you need to think about these things, in my view, in a really like expansive way. So not just, well, if we have co-chairs, or we have PR, or we have the term limits, or whatever the, the kind of like latest latest idea is. I don't think any of them are sufficient on their own if sure. there's no.
0: But surely, accountability—that's uh, um, the the role of the media in a democracy—is to hold the powerful accountable.
1: Yeah. I think it's their role. Uh, I don't think they do it. Um, I Certainly not in this country. Um, I think the way, at the start of lockdown, there was this, I think, grotesque scene where the government were taking very bad decisions on lockdown. They were, they were doing things very differently to WHO guidance. They were doing things very differently to every other country. And a lot of people, ordinary people, were like, I'm not sure this is the right thing to do. And you had the media class kind of collectively berating those people. So there, there's a quote, the, the phrase hipster analysis, um, uh, some labor aligned journalist uh, when when this was all going on saying on twitter she said, she said something i don't have the exact quote but said something like we don't we don't need any more hipster analysis from people on twitter it turns out that hipster, anal- hipster analysis was spot on and sage and, and everyone there recognizes that if we locked down earlier for example tens of thousands of people would have not died right uh, and and so you had this as i say this grotesque scene where the media were holding the public to account mm. rather than the government uh, and you've seen that time and time again over lockdown where uh, the reason cases are going up is because young people won't get vaccinated or because people are being irresponsible in the pub, not because sick pay is not sufficient for people to self-isolate if they need to, not because people, you know, workplaces were being encouraged to reopen, not because the government did eat, eat out to help. No, it's, it's the public's fault. And it was interesting that UGov then started to poll on who they blamed for cases going up, and increasingly people started seeing saying the public. So you see this process where... We know the media can hold powerful people to account because on occasion they do. They,
2: you know,
1: they held Corbyn's Labour Party very much to account. Um, I think they've done an atrocious job of holding this government to account. And I really worry that that's only going to get worse. The changes that are happening to the BBC, uh, this new GB News, it's kind of like American imported, yeah. kind of shock jock, far right, uh, Times Radio, I think the media landscape in the UK is getting worse and worse and worse, and I'm really worried about it because I think you're right. A healthy democracy relies on the media to hold the government to account and expose them. Um, and now, Gove got found to have broken the law. Michael Gove um, this week barely made a peep in the papers, um, but Meghan Markle wall to yeah, wall coverage just seems like a totally distorted I know. Um, set of priorities and so I I I don't know what the answer to that is I think projects like this are really important like alternative media projects there's a handful of them that are doing very well Bella Caledonia in Scotland been a big success Uh, Navarra Media projects like that I think are are good examples but they're none of them are like a mass project maybe that gets back to the scale of ambition um, because I think a lot of these projects are happy to just be like a left-wing blog um but w- what we really need i think is i don't know like yeah. a left-wing tv channel or 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 just newspaper even like beyond like wings that.
0: just independent so it's not owned by anybody yeah
1: yeah yeah something yeah, yeah something genuinely impartial yeah i, 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 I take know. that the thing have,
0: is yeah. though right like um i um I am very wary of like the, the binarized thinking of, you know, um, it's not the either it's all on the public to do something or it's not in the public at all to do something. Because like, if you look totally. at, you know, algorithms, yeah. like they're incredibly manipulative, but ultimately if you input data into it, they're yeah. going to use it. And what I mean by that is, Whoa. you know, mega, like paper having worked in journalism, like you publish what is going to get you page views because you need money because it is a dramatically actually underfunded industry it's a dying industry and people don't really take this into account yep. when they start blasting the media yep. like the media is doing everything it can to survive so if the public wants to read more about megan markle than michael gove That's what they're gonna be writing about. So it's also on the public to start, for us all to start taking responsibility of like, what kind of political landscape do I wanna see? What kind of media landscape do I wanna see? What discussions do I wanna be part of? And it's on politics to implement that on an educational level, to to start having these discussions in schools, to start educating people about politics, about history. I mean, you would not believe, like when I lived in France and I, you know, my French friends were like, you didn't learn about British history at school. Like you got to opt out of that at 12 you don't know what like yeah. your country's violent history. Nah, nah. Whereas they all learn about how shitty yeah. France was, you know, like it's a, yeah. it, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a bi-directional approach. It has to be top down and bottom up. Um, but we do really have yeah. to take into account I, like the context of of such problems and the, the media is not some, you know, abstract, um, What's the word when you, um, in literature, when you give um, something a personage? I can't remember. That's awkward.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. So I think that's totally true. A couple of things on that. One is that, um, of course, they have to to cater to their audience. They also have to cater to their advertisers. And I I think there's been a couple of really interesting campaigns over the last couple of years around that. So people calling on, on advertisers to stop putting ads in the Daily Mail. Or the Sun, for example, I think that that's been a really interesting way of like shaping shaping that narrative. That um, you know, partly to put pressure on those papers to be less racist, partly to say, well, if you're going to be racist, we'll make you go bankrupt. And I think just today, the Sun announced um, 200 million losses, which didn't, I shed no tears for. But you, you are, of course, right that the the industry is doing very badly, and I think that is part of the problem. So. Uh, papers that previously would have had you know, industrial yeah. correspondents and investigative journalists yeah. now just rely on freelancers. That's been quite good for Living Rent because it means that previously, whereas it was all very professionalized, journalists are now mm. young, precarious mm. people who are likely to be tenants. So the amount of time we're phoning on selling in a story and someone's like, Oh yeah, that happened to me. Like, <laughs> nice, cool you understand. Um but yeah, I mean I think there's there's been a couple couple projects not, like, left-wing, not not particularly right-wing either, um, that have been very successful. Um, the series of, like, City Live, so Edinburgh Live, Glasgow Live, Bristol Live, whatever. Is, there's a bunch of them. And I think, as I understand it, they are, if you think about their journalistic model, their, their business model is doing quite well. And I think it's, imp- like, we need to work out what the media landscape is going to look like, because with the best will in the world, even papers who wanted to hold the government to account are now less equipped mm. to do so, even if they wanted to. And um, so, yeah, I guess... I don't know. I don't know what that's going to look like in in, in in years to come.
2: Mm.
1: Um, I'm quite worried about it because... I think it plays such a formative role in in people's opinions but there have been over the last couple of years some very like prominent examples of where people have bucked that trend uh, and so not to keep coming back to it because I, I know it was like deeply deeply flawed in lots of ways but the Corbyn project was reviled by the media you know the I, I don't like to be one of those like mainstream media bias but academic research has shown mm-hmm. that coverage was yeah. overwhelmingly and consistently negative huge amount of like incorrect yeah. uh, factual inaccuracies and things like that and yet in 2017 in their millions yeah. people went and voted for that so i also don't like the idea that people are just so stupid that anything the sun says they'll go do
0: oh.
1: um but
0: it's incredibly infantilizing and
1: it is it is it is and i think like my project insofar as i have one is, is about recognising the people's agency and power. Mm. And I think sometimes leftists fall into traps with frustration or whatever of doing and saying things that take us so further away from that. So implying that people only do things because the media say so, I think is part of that. Yeah. Um, and
0: It also doesn't I provide like a to, solution. Apart from, no, you know, exactly. completely undoing an industry, which which is um, impossible at this stage. But, and, and but I mean, not, that's
1: not a solution either, yeah. because there's no strategy to do that. Exactly. Even, even if that's what you want, is to just, like, abolish journalism.
0: Oh, my God. Fine. But, <gasps> but how? No, but also, just you know? fucking don't... Sorry, excuse my friend. But, like, just yeah, don't, please. Yeah. Like, just look yeah, at any totally. nation in the world yeah. that does not have a strong Absolutely. tradition of media. Do you want to live there?
1: Do you, yeah, no, totally. Go, and I think... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, like I, it's it's one of the things I found difficult about the the BBC is 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 clearly in a bad position yeah. and is under under attack, and yeah. I really empathise with people who don't have much sympathy for that. Mm-hmm. They're like they're a right wing state broadcaster type thing, and um, I, I, like I, I do understand where where people come from on that because you know they've seen the way they've spoken about things that they care about and the people they 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 care about um but i think a, a uk without the bbc would it be any better probably not and it would probably be replaced by something like you know it's not like it would just not be replaced and it's certainly not like it would be replaced by some something better um You only have to look at the states to see that our media landscape could be way worse. Absolutely. Or Australia. Absolutely.
0: And the funny thing I find about the BBC is like people like to criticize it because it doesn't take, I don't know, a stand or whatever. It's like it's it's legally bound to be impartial. And sure, sometimes it doesn't do that well enough. And that's where you can criticize it. But, you know, it is like this one sort of gatekeeper. Um, which is why a lot of Americans watch it during their elections because it's the only yeah. impartial channel that they can access. Yeah. Um, so, like, people don't like the BBC because it's not sexy and it, and it kind of fails in, in their understanding of it, they, you know, but it's like, how many people t- pay TV licenses nowadays? I'd really like to actually know the figures. Yeah. People don't yeah. own televisions. All of us millennials, Gen yeah. Z, we're yeah. streaming, you know? like yeah, know. It, it, it yeah. has been cutting funds for about... Fifteen years, the BBC has been in huge shit um and it is still trying, and it has a lot of work to do. but like to undo it or to replace it with something like GB News or whatever would just be yeah. so catastrophic because look how much these tabloids yeah. harm the nation,
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. and and it's you know, for whatever like reservations left leftists might have about the BBC the 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 campaign to defund the bbc is coming from the right it's coming from real fox and, and people like that And that's instructive
0: yeah, absolutely but it, it boggles my mind why like leftists don't want to work more with the media and i remember like writing about this at university which is how i kind of came into mm-hmm. like the the student politics circle in my last few months um just i was amazed that like you know with the, the student politics uh the University of Aberdeen weren't like tipping off us journalists or weren't coming to speak to us or like use us as a platform or whatever and instead we're just really you know off standoffish and off guard and it's the same I find nowadays with with you know big activist groups and the media um, like use it more don't be so afraid of it just practice your PR practice your debates practice everything you know a journalist actually isn't out to get anybody journalist is out to get a story you just have to yeah. give them stuff. Yeah, and
1: even if even if the editors have a line, um, it's, it's something we've we've worked really hard in with Living Rent is we've got like a dedicated press team, we've got a dedicated press strategy. We work really hard to do that. We build it into to what we do, and um, but I think we're quite unique in, in mm. that. And and the results speak for themselves. We, we get coverage all the time, often really mm. good coverage. And um, you know the amount of times we send out a press release, which gets printed word oh, really? for word.
0: Good for you guys. Um,
1: and. Yeah, well, I mean, partly I think that's a reflection of the state of the industry that, uh, you know, the journal- papers don't have the journalists to, like, interrogate a story and, and rewrite it themselves. So they'll just copy-paste it. If you send them something, they can copy-paste. Um, but, like, you know, I speak to other activist groups. And I'm like, why, why, why didn't you press release mm. this, this action? I mean, you do it. And they're like, I think part of it is there's there's a myst- mysteriousness surrounding press work that some people are like, oh, I Window how um, I've also I've seen some press releases that good good activists have written that are terrible. So I think there, there are some yeah, skills definitely. that people need. Um but I think as you say, there is also a hostility and or, well, on on the one hand a hostility um and a reluctance to speak to like the mainstream media, and on the other hand, uh like a lack of understanding about like how it could support campaign, how it could contribute, how it could help reach a wider audience. And, and we find it in living room. We win a case, we do some press on it, we get good press work, and then people hear about us that would never have otherwise, because they're not in our networks, they're not people that are you know, friends of people who are members, they hear about us because mm-hmm. we're in the paper, mm-hmm. and then they join. And then you've get, then you got a bigger network, and that just gets mad to... Yeah, Not absolutely. too
0: bad. But it, yeah, it is a skill set. involves a bit of a, a network. It involves a bit of faith as well. And I think there's often like there's yeah. um, us against them mentality in a lot of groups. Yeah. Whether, and that, I don't mean just activists. I mean any groups, whether it's like Tories or whatever. Yeah, everyone, you, you get yeah. into that mode of thinking yeah. that nobody wants to help you. And the ego comes in like it's us against the world type thing. And it's like a, a lot of people yeah. are actually willing to jump on board if you just explain it. Yeah. Can I ask? Yeah. Sorry. Can, can I ask, does Living Rent identify with any political leaning?
1: No. Um, I think we're obviously quite left-wing. Um, but we so we don't... We're totally non-partisan. We don't side with any party. Um, we don't... There's a discussion happening about it at the moment. We don't have like a political platform that you have to like sign up to to join or, or anything like that. We try not to use like unnecessary like leftist mm-hmm. aesthetics don't say like comrade you know hammers and sickles are, are colors green mm-hmm. instead of red you know, th- things like that, that i think are on the one hand superficial but they, they send a big message to people and i think lots of other people don't do that um and you know as i say when, when we're recruiting people the only prerequisite is that you want to improve mm-hmm. your lot as a tenant and, and, and other people's laws as tenants Um, there is an ongoing discussion internally about having like a political platform that we'd ask people to sign up to, not sure what that would look like, or if it would just be specific to like a platform for housing, which I think is maybe fine. Um, but we never, we wouldn't like describe ourselves as a socialist organization, for example. Um, well,
0: why not? Why did you make that decision? I mean, it's obviously working, but why it's
1: a good question. Um, not sure how deliberate it always has been. I think partly it just kind of happened. I think it partly, like, we genuinely want to be enormous. Like, I, I want to have a million members. Um, and anything that makes that harder, you'd want to really interrogate whether it was worth it. Uh, and I think putting up barriers to entry for political reasons, not sure it is worth it. I mean, that said, you know, we wouldn't wouldn't want, like, racists to, you know, if someone, if, like, members of the National Front were trying to join, we'd probably stop that. So it's not like we just, take anyone. Um, But I think being a little bit more open-minded about it has allowed us to grow in a way that might not have otherwise been possible. And, of course, every time you put, you know, if, if we were to take a position on... Syria or something like that. I think there's a risk that people who otherwise support ninety nine percent of the work we do disagree on this one like statement and then and then that means they don't join. Um we have put things out about uh put some stuff out about Palestine, um did some stuff on, on Kenamere Street and, and the deportation and, and Black Lives Matter and and stuff like that. But um yeah, we definitely don't have like a manifesto as an organisation. That said, I, I, most people, certainly most of the organisers, probably do fall very much on the left of the spectrum. But there absolutely are members who are not particularly left-wing. Um, I, I don't think there's anyone who's particularly right-wing, but there's definitely lots of people who are centrists. Or or even what's, to me, much more important, people who wouldn't articulate their like belief system as political at all. You know they don't they don't consider themselves mm. activists or political or they certainly don't consider themselves to be a socialist or a centrist or a playwright or whatever They're just like i can hate my landlords and i want to like work with my neighbors <laughs> to sort it out and to me that's infinitely more valuable than some like politics graduate who's able to like pinpoint the exact parameters of their ideology
0: do you think that this could be like a new form of politics then is that hope for living rent that it does grow into a party to represent these
2: people
1: no i don't think we'd be a party there's been there's been some talk about running uh in council elections and things like that um and down south in in england there are there are some councils that are run by the residents' associations which i think is interesting um don't think they're particularly progressive those ones um i think Part of what's allowed Living Rent to grow in that, that inclusive way is that as an organisation we're non-partisan but put no limits on what members do. So we've got members from all parties and what that means is whereas um, in in some of the elections in, in Edinburgh uh, there were SNP candidates that signed up to our manifesto, there were Labour candidates who signed up to our manifesto and they'd be like at loggerheads in a hustling. Um, but they were both members of Living Rent and then they would after the hustling, they'd get back to the bread and butter of living rent. So we had an action that mm. they, were, they were at and, and helped do and organise. And, and I think that's been helpful because I think as well as asking people not to have to subscribe to some big programme to join, you also don't want to ask them to abandon things that they have prescribed to. Uh, and I think, I think that's important that it's able to exist alongside the other kind of legal priorities
0: But, I mean, shouldn't this be the future of politics? Because currently, as it stands, with the things being, you know, two wings of the Mm. same thing and very, very bloody ideological, it's like, you know, if you're left and you think this on housing and this on immigration and this on economics, and if you're right, you think that. Like, you can kind of just, like, adopt, you know, you can swallow the whole playbook just by identifying as right or left wing. You don't have to really critically think of, of anything. Surely this kind of, like, going... Ooh, I'm going to sound cheesy here, but like going beyond politics, Mm -hmm. you know, and creating a new politics whereby people can sort of like mix and match across the body of the bird, which I assume it is, you know, to maybe mix some like solid right wing economic policies with some solid left wing immigration policies and whatever, you know, isn't isn't that where we want to aim?
1: I, I don't know. Like I... I don't mix and match. I, I definitely, I'm, I'm like, I'm quite dogmatic with my politics. I'm, I'm, okay. I'm very much on the left um, on, on 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 all of them. Um, but it's definitely the case, you know, There's like Tory councillors in in Edinburgh who would disagree with me on almost everything, but I've been really supportive on on some of the stuff mm. that Rents has been doing. I think that's positive. I think the problem isn't necessarily like the existence of parties, um, but. It's one of the things I'm sympathetic about the the, the first-past-the-post argument down south is that in England, there really is only space for two parties. You see that mm. really playing out. Um, and that allows all sorts of terrible things to happen, including, for example, you know, if you're a, a Labour right-winger or a Tory... Um, you know, it's really easy to write off supporters. So where else are they going to go? And I think the Tories miscalculated that and most of their members started to go to the Brexit Party recently we've seen loads of Labour voters voting green. Um in Scotland it's not quite that bad. We've mm. got a more pluralistic parliament, more pluralistic electoral system that allows for lots more parties. So um you you can vote green. It's not a wasted vote. You you can you can split your vote, you can vote Labour on the list and, and Tory in your constituency if
2: you don't see no.
1: people doing that. I think that's much healthier. Um and most countries have a healthier, more pluralistic parliamentary system than than the UK does. Um, I think, so, yeah, I don't know. It's definitely healthier for people to be able to change their minds on things. And I think mm. The way parties are structured makes that very difficult for people without like defecting or or things like that, Mm. Um, which we shouldn't have to if you just want to disagree about one thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, of course. Are you sure you won't run for something, Gordon? Yeah. I mean, I really feel like Scotland needs you. I'm
1: pretty sure. um, I'm pretty sure. I like to... I don't like to compromise. And I much prefer being the person on the outside making uh, strong worded demands than the person on the inside balancing priorities and, and negotiating things, um, and you know I sometimes have to do that in negotiations with landlords. But, you know they don't just give us absolutely everything we want, and I, mm. I hate it. I much yeah. prefer being organising on the outside. But I think there is a new generation of people emerging in Scotland and 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 in lots of other places as well. You see it certainly in the states that are kind of unburdened by the propaganda that you know the, the like cold War era stuff you know that just doesn't mean anything to people of our generation um they they're they've not come in through what I think are often some like like toxic political cultures like like trade unions and things like that and were in the 70s and 80s you know, you've got these people coming in and building these new new organizations around them that I like to think that living around it is like a part of that but almost as a part of that um, People like AOC or Rashida Tlaib or Ilhan Omar, I think, are, are great examples of people who give me a lot of cause for hope. So it won't be me, but uh, I'm not totally pessimistic about having people that we can enthusiastically vote for in the future.
0: Okay. All right. <laughs> I still, I've got two things to say. I still think you should, and the thing is, the problem with AOC is that she's um, the second worst. <laughs> um what congress member Is she a member of congress yes yeah yeah second worst Congress member for getting legislation passed she's yeah I, this, she's like 167 out of 168 in terms of so actually I, getting stuff done
1: i think sometimes there's this idea what's the phrase so the, i think sometimes we think of power in really restrictive terms you take Nigel Farage, for example, right, never won an MPC, never won an election, always by by that measure did terribly, never got into parliament, mm. um, and yet he shaped British politics for a decade and achieved his his life ambition. Um, you you know, he shaped it not just in terms of Brexit, but in terms of immigration, and all of this. Um, and so, if you were to look really narrowly at his electoral performance, you would say he was a total failure. But I think he totally reshaped. The country. Uh, and so I like to think not just to excuse the people who I like, not just to excuse their failures. Um I like to think that things are a little bit blurrier.
0: I think that's very and, balanced. That. I would just combat that with being very wary of uh performative politicians, which totally. then yeah, make people lose their faith in the cause. Sure.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree.
0: Like uh Good old Kamala going out this week and telling Guatemalans not to come. Yep. Nice one, Democrats.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I just, I mean, I'm glad I don't live in the States um, because this stuff, I mean, the amount of times the Democrats do things, Trump would do something and, and this whole, like, strata of people be up in arms, furious about it. Then the Democrats do it and no one cares. Yeah, totally. So it's... the amount of people who overlooked or outright aggressively dismissed, what I think were very credible harassment allegations against Joe Biden, because it wasn't politically convenient for them. Mm-hmm. I just think that's sickening.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely vile what's yeah. been going on in the United States. I was so disappointed yeah. in, you know, progressivism, quote unquote, when Kamala Harris won. And yeah. because she's a person of colour and because she was a woman, it was lauded as this, like, huge thing. And, like, there yeah, her is... Her
1: politics are off. Her
0: politics are so shocking. Her yeah. voting yeah. record is disgusting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She yeah. is so far right. She wouldn't be aligned yeah. with any centrist or left-leaning party in the United Kingdom. Yeah. Like, yeah. And to just praise her, essentially, for two things that she hasn't chosen, her sex and her skin colour, is just mm. so... Depressingly regressive.
1: Yeah, and also, yeah, it's just really patronising, and, and it just like opens the door to terrible things. And the Tories are playing on that now. You see, like, Priti Patel um, is like hasn't made Britain less racist. Yeah, you know. Uh, and I think this idea of representation for representation's sake is a just isn't a silver bullet. It's
0: not good not good no 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 no. it's uh it's been i think it's been framed as a win for for the left um and i think any win would be the fact that it's great for young people to see somebody that looks like them or talks like them or is like them in positions of power but to to be defining people like, based off of these sort of like characteristics or manifestations of culture, rather than actually looking at like, yeah. what do they do with their power? What are they like? Yeah, totally. What's their network? Is,
1: yeah. It's it's the classic one about Thatcher. Like was Thatcher becoming prime minister good for women in the UK? No. no. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, uh,
0: I don't think I've ever asked, heard anybody ask that question. Seriously.
1: Well, yeah. So there's, there's this like, um, God, who is it? So did an interview with one of the Spice Girls. it was like, do you think Margaret Thatcher had girl power? She was like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, did she effectively use that girl power when she funneled money into illegal northern Irish paramilitaries? It's like, well... Yeah. So, I, yeah, so there's loads of examples of that sort of thing. And I think, like, look, we need... Like, p- politics and parties would be better if they were more diverse and more reflective of, of you know, demographics and stuff. But you're always going to find people who tick a box in their identity, but in their actions and their views and their opinions, completely uphold all the oppressive structures that that we need to be changing. And I think that's no win.
0: Absolutely. Tell me, are there any um, young British politicians that you've got your eye on that give you big hope for the future?
1: Big hope. Great hope. Yeah. I think Zara Sultana is a Labour MP down south. I think she's brilliant. Um, I think one of the things I really like about her is like her social media operation, I think is really good uh, on a journey to like persuade people, win them round. Um, it's, it's a handful of people in Scotland. Um, not, I mean not a ton, really. I'm, I'm, like I'm struggling to think of who who our who our equivalents are. And um, in Ireland, there's a lot more like very like community based organising. Okay. Um, so people who you know really really like um, the guy Jerry Carroll in Belfast who has his problems, but I think it's like a really interesting different approach to politics. That I think is interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, so there are people, but the places I really draw my inspiration from are living around activists and Acorn, uh, a tenants union down south, things they're doing. There's been some really inspirational kind of trade union struggles over the last couple of years, and like non traditional ones. So I think the people organizing delivery drivers
2: are mm, amazing.
1: Yeah. Um, and that's where I draw my, my inspiration and my optimism and my hope. Uh, and maybe some of these people will go on to be candidates or MPs or MSPs in in the next election or, or in years to come. Um, but to be honest, I think they're doing much more important work now by building the social basis to get good good people mm. elected and, mm. and to mm. account down the line.
0: Oh, fingers crossed for them. <laughs> Let me know how I can help them. Uh, Tell me, Gordon, I I think we could go on and on and on and on and on. And I'll probably want to have you back Mm. on the show to talk about trade unions, actually, just like a very specific conversation. But uh, to finish up, who would you like to platform?
1: Great question. It's a really good question. I think it would be really interesting to speak to someone from like the Corbyn mm. project um, and get their like their reflections on it, where it went wrong, what happened, what lessons it has for social movements, for left parliamentary projects, um, and there's any number of them, people who people who are involved in momentum or things like that. And um, I think if you can get someone to be honest about what went wrong, what went right, what they should have done differently I find that really interesting because I think it was an anomaly in British politics and the 2017 result was, was really interesting. And there's been plenty of introspection about what went wrong. I think we need to start thinking about what went right as well.
0: Mm. All right, brilliant idea, thank you. Cool. Listen, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you yeah, for all your really wisdom.
1: <laughs> yeah, when um, looking forward to seeing it when it goes up.
0: I'll let you know. Hey folks, me again. Just stopping by to remind you, you can find Living Rent at livingrent.org, where you can find out everything there is to know about their organization and more importantly, get involved. Also, please don't forget to leave uh, this podcast a five-star rating and subscribe to Platform Enterprise over at platformenterprise.com, where you can get this podcast delivered to your inbox every single week. All right. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. I'll see you next week.